Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I've got to start this morning uh, by getting a little something off my chest. I'm mad at y'all. I'm mad at y'all because you promised that 2021 was going to be so much better than 2020. You said we were going to leave all of the terrible things about last year behind and that this new year was going to be our best one ever. Remember all the hope we had back on January 1st? Remember all the inspiring memes. I have a personal favorite, um, this one from Drake. As you can see, he's putting the hand up to 2020, but he's giving the finger in the best way to 2021. Come on over here, 2021. It's going to be our best year ever. That Drake meme is simple and it's classic and it perfectly captured how I felt this past New Year's Day. But less than two months into 2021, it all feels a little bit like a lie. COVID-19 has new strains now. We had a violent insurrection at the United States Capitol. And then this week, Texas endured a disaster of epic proportions. As someone so eloquently said, 2021 is basically just 2020, but now it's old enough to drink. Seven short weeks in, this year really does feel like a drunk version of last year. Now, I'm obviously trying to make us laugh a little bit here, but y'all, this year has been no joke. I have felt my hope for the future diminishing as we have trudged through these first couple of months in 2021. It's been hard. Some of you watching or listening to this right now still don't have running water. A lot of you, if you have running water, almost all of us are still under a boil water notice. A lot of you are trying to deal with pipes that burst this week and you can't get a plumber to even call you back because they are so busy. And on top of all that, we are still dealing with the effects of a global pandemic. So what do we do? Well, Austin's beloved El Arroyo sign has a suggestion. Here's what it says. 2022 going to be my year for sure. 2022 is going to be my year for sure. But as much as I love El Arroyo and their sign, we all know the solution to our current struggles can't just be to write off 2021 and start hoping again that next year will be better. Thankfully, Jesus has given us a much better option. This morning, we are continuing our teaching series called Kingdom Incarnate. And we've been looking at stories from the life of Jesus during this series where he embodies God's kingdom, where he incarnates it. He puts flesh on it here on earth. And God's kingdom being this new world order, this new way of living that Jesus came to teach us about and to demonstrate. Today's story from Jesus' life is especially timely for what we are going through right now. It is recorded in Luke's account of Jesus' life, chapter 13, starting in verse 10. You can turn there, or in just a second, the verses will be on the screen. But before we jump into the story, let me set the scene for us a little bit. 
If you don't know, every year, all of our teaching series and restore group questions kind of center around a theme. And since August of 2020, our annual theme has been a year in the life of Jesus. And this is exactly what it sounds like. A journey through the life and work of Jesus Christ, all the way from his miraculous birth to his death and resurrection. And at this point in the story, where we are today, we are approaching the last year of Jesus' life on earth. He's traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which is where the final and most famous week of his life occurs. During what many have called Passion Week or Holy Week, Jesus has his last supper with his closest friends, is betrayed by one of his closest followers, and is arrested and eventually killed on the cross. We'll cover all of that and more in our next series, but like I said, in our story today, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. Now, this is a long journey. It's not like jumping in the car and going to a neighboring city. In fact, it takes Luke about 10 chapters in his account to cover the entire thing. And that's mostly because Jesus keeps stopping to teach or to perform miracles or to just help someone in need. And that's actually what happens in our story today. One day during this trip, Luke tells us that Jesus stops at a Jewish synagogue to teach. Chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Here's what it says. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. So two really significant things are mentioned by Luke in this opening sentence. I want to point them out to you. Number one, it's the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching. So this is actually the first of five different times Luke mentions that it's the Sabbath day in this story. He wants you to really understand, and you'll see in just a moment how important it is. But for right now, We just need to know that keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments given by God to the Jewish people through Moses in the Old Testament. Here's what that fourth commandment says in its entirety. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So that's number one. Number one, it's the Sabbath. Number two, we know that Jesus is in a synagogue. Now, this is really significant because it's the only time Jesus visits a synagogue on this long journey to Jerusalem, and it's the last time he will ever visit one to teach before his death and resurrection. We know from Luke chapter 4, earlier in Luke's account, that Jesus has a common message, something he always talks about when he visits a synagogue. This message kind of serves as Jesus' mission statement actually spent an entire Sunday diving into it back in October, but here's kind of the core part of this sermon he preaches over and over again in the synagogue. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus's synagogue message was one of both spiritual and physical liberation, freedom for all people. This is the good news, what we've come to call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's central, not secondary, not tertiary. It is central to the message of God's kingdom. And it's important to note this kingdom isn't far off and distant. In fact, Jesus sits down right after preaching this message for the first time in Luke 4, and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom of God right then and there. And that's why we are spending this whole series looking at moments where he didn't just teach about the kingdom of God, but he demonstrated it. He embodied it. He incarnated it as well. So back to our story. Jesus is in a synagogue, once again, preaching this message about the good news of God's kingdom. But then something happens. Something happens that causes him to stop in his tracks, to stop preaching in the middle of his synagogue sermon. Verse 10 again. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now, the the description of this woman's ailment is important to note. British theologian Ian Paul says, various discussions of her medical condition consistently conclude that she suffered from ankylosing spondylitis. I don't know if I said that right. That's just a guess. An arthritic inflammation of the vertebrae, which leads to curvature of the spine and progressive inability to flex the joints. There's still no cure for this condition. So Luke also points out that she has been crippled by a spirit, is what he says. But this encounter doesn't resemble any of the other stories of demon possession that Luke records. In fact, the words for demon, unclean spirit, possession, or expelling found in all the other stories of exorcisms are not found in this story at all. So even though we know it's not a story of demon possession, Luke is making it clear that this woman is suffering from both spiritual and physical bondage. And thus, she needs to be set free both spiritually and physically. So let's see what Jesus does. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward. And he said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. This is such a powerful scene. So much is packed in to these two verses. I want us to put ourselves in the story for a moment. I want you to put yourself in this story for a moment. You've come to the synagogue to listen to this teacher that you've been hearing so much about. Most likely you are sitting on the ground and then Jesus is either standing in front of you or sitting on a chair. People are divided up by gender, men on one side, women on the other in order to listen to Jesus. And you start listening to him and you think, this guy, Jesus, He is all he's been cracked up to be and more. His teaching is so beautiful and life-giving that as you sit there, it's blowing you away. But then, quite abruptly, he stops teaching. You see him looking over your head. And so you turn around, try to see what he's looking at. In the back of the room, you see a disabled woman. Now, you've seen her dozens of times. She often comes to the synagogue, quietly slipping in and out to pray or to get some food. But you don't know her name. You don't know really anything else about her because she belongs to a much lower class than you. And in the honor-shame culture in which you live, one where physical ailment is actually a sign of sinful choices, she is the lowest of the low. She's not only bent low physically, she is bent low socially as well. If the socio-political ladder ranks people from top to bottom, she is on the lowest rung. But even though 
Your eyes have bounced quickly on and off of her for years as she's wandered in and out. Jesus's eyes don't bounce. They fixate on her directly. He sees her. And even though she usually passes almost invisibly through the crowd, Jesus notices her. And when he sees her, he stops teaching. He is silent long enough to make you start to get a little uncomfortable as you sit there. You you want him to just start teaching again. You've loved the words that he was saying, but he doesn't start teaching again. In fact, he does something so societally inappropriate that it takes your breath away. He calls out to the disabled woman and beckons her to come up in front of you and the entire audience. This woman looks bewildered, but she complies. And she makes her way slowly to the front. And as she does, you become more and more uncomfortable. The synagogue is completely silent as everyone watches what Jesus will do next. With every eye fixed on him and on the woman, Jesus lays his hands on her and says, woman, you are set free. And as soon as the words come out of his mouth, her back straightens. She stands up normally for the first time in almost two decades. And in front of the whole synagogue, she praises God unashamedly. She has been set free from spiritual, physical, and even social bondage. Her faith is restored, her body is restored, and Jesus has restored her back to your local community as well. The broken world broke this woman, but Jesus put her back together. The broken world bent her low, both physically and socially, but Jesus lifted her up. It had kept her chained for 18 years, but Jesus set her free. Moments before, Jesus had been in the middle of preaching about this kingdom of God, this place where he said the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed all experience healing and freedom. And when you heard it, it sounded too good to be true. But then you watched it happen in front of your own eyes. Right there before you, a poor and oppressed woman was set free. This guy, Jesus, he didn't just talk a good game or preach a good sermon. He wasn't like any rabbi you had ever seen. He was something else entirely. Something both perfectly human, but also completely divine, otherworldly. And you were in awe. What a moment. I wish I could have been there. But not everyone was amazed in the synagogue that day. In fact, one person was downright angry. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Now, some quick background on what Luke calls synagogue leaders. They were tasked with two main things. Number one, proper interpretation and enforcement of the Jewish law, the Old Testament uh, part of that, the law that was given from God to Moses. And number two, maintaining order in the synagogue. Those were their two jobs. Now, to this particular synagogue leader, Jesus' actions are a direct attack on both of those things. Jesus caused a disruption to the order in the synagogue by bringing this low-class woman to the front 
And he has broken the Jewish law, in your opinion, by healing her on the Sabbath. So he springs into action, the synagogue leader, and he doesn't just address his concerns to Jesus. He directs his comments to everyone in the room. This is the synagogue leader publicly challenging Jesus's authority. Now, remember, it said that Jesus was teaching before this, right? So the synagogue leader now believes that Jesus is teaching incorrectly. So he challenges him. He attempts to reassert himself as the correct interpreter of Scripture, the keeper of the law, the keeper of order, instead of Jesus. He does this primarily by quoting the verse about the fourth commandment from Deuteronomy that we read earlier. He is publicly accusing Jesus of misinterpreting or altogether ignoring Jewish law. And that's an accusation which, if proven correct, would severely diminish Jesus in the eyes of the people, possibly get him kicked out of synagogues for the rest of his life. Jesus responds by quoting the very same passage of Scripture back to him. Verse 15, the Lord, that's Jesus, answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Jesus is referring back to the rest of the verses, the ones that the synagogue leader conveniently left out from Deuteronomy. Here's what the full passage says. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now listen, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Jesus tells the synagogue leader in no uncertain terms, you have completely missed the point of the Sabbath. It is a beautiful gift God has provided to humanity and to creation to bring restoration, not a religious rule meant to further oppress people. Yeah, the scripture literally says that your donkey shouldn't do any work, but you untie it and he has to work to walk down to the stream to get water. That's not the point. You have missed the point, Jesus says. The religious leader's accusation gives Jesus the chance to interpret not just the scripture about the Sabbath, but the healing miracle as well. You see, this woman, her healing physically, spiritually, and socially is not peripheral to the kingdom of God. It is central. This miracle is the physical embodiment of God's kingdom. This divine mission that Jesus laid out in Luke 4 is coming to life in this very moment, in this very synagogue, right in front of their eyes. A quick side note here, don't get caught plucking Bible verses out of context and using them to support whatever you want to in front of Jesus, because he'll call you out on it. He'll call you out on it, just like he did this synagogue leader. There is way too many folks in our world weaponizing the Bible to hurt people. Jesus wasn't having it then, and I promise he is not having it now. So quit. Jesus calls the synagogue leader a hypocrite. He says that this guy's piety is a sham, and his biblical interpretation is actually just a convenient cover for his desire to maintain power and oppress others. Now let's see how the synagogue leader takes it. Verse 17. When he said this, that was Jesus, all his opponents were humiliated. 
But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. This man, this synagogue leader attempts to shame Jesus and this disabled woman, but in the end, it is he who is shamed. Jesus is turning the honor-shame culture of the day upside down on its head. This humble woman was one of the lowest caste members of society, but now she is honored in front of everyone. The synagogue leader was one of the highest caste members of society, but he refuses to humble himself, and so Jesus does it for him. And he does this, Jesus does, for a very specific kingdom of God reason. Here's Ian Paul again. This is not about mere petty vengeance. It is about Luke communicating who is truly honored and shamed in a social context where these values were of defining importance. Despite the dominant cultural view, it is actually those who follow Jesus who have the place of true honor in contrast to all appearances to the contrary. I love that quote. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom, a place where the humble and lowly are lifted up, but the prideful and mighty are brought down. Now, unfortunately, this is where most preachers mistakenly stop teaching this story. Now, they do so innocently because there is a subtitle, a new subtitle in front of the next section in our English Bibles. But just so you know, I believe the Bible is inspired by God, but I know for a fact that our English subtitles are not. The story doesn't stop here. After Jesus' repartee with the synagogue leader, he goes right back to teaching. And it's so vital that we connect the healing of this disabled woman to the teaching that Jesus continues to do in the synagogue because that's exactly what Jesus does. This message is further explanation of the miracle he just performed. So put yourself back in the scene. You've just seen this disabled woman miraculously healed. Now, with her back upright again, she is able to sit and listen to a teacher in the synagogue for the first time in 18 years. Usually she had to walk in the back, invisible to almost everyone who was there. She couldn't sit down and watch. She couldn't sit down and listen. I like to imagine that now that she can, she sits down right next to you and right in front of Jesus. Now, you've also just seen Jesus dismantle the oppressive arguments of the synagogue leader. You got to watch him slink out of the room in shame. And now all eyes, including yours, are back on Jesus. Luke just told you that you are delighted. The people are delighted by everything that you have seen. It's the most incredible thing you've ever witnessed. And then Jesus turns to you and to the rest of the crowd and he asks, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Now, remember that Jesus is all about this kingdom of God thing. He laid out what it would look like in chapter four and probably again in this synagogue right before the woman walked in. 
Then he demonstrates the kingdom by healing the disabled woman, setting her free from physical, spiritual, and social bondage. He further demonstrates it by ex- explaining um, how the synagogue leader's arguments were wrong and oppressive and that that's not God's intention. But now he sits back and he is explaining how the kingdom of God works, the how of it in these two short parables. He gives us these two examples of, quote, what the kingdom of God is like. And even though he is talking about a kingdom, he doesn't use examples normally associated with royalty. He uses them from everyday life, seeds and yeast. Now, what do these two things have in common, seeds and yeast? Even though they are small in size, they have a big impact. Let me say that again. Even though seeds and yeast are small in size, they have a big impact. Seeds are tiny. Every time we've tried to do planting projects with our kids, Amy and I, we always end up like opening one of those little packages and then accidentally bumping them and they spill out everywhere and they're so small, you can't find them, you can't tell like what's a seed and what's a piece of dirt. They're so small, you can't even find them, they fall into the cracks. But when a seed is planted, it grows into something much bigger. The mustard seed Jesus mentions here can grow up to nine feet tall. The Texas live oaks that we have all around here start out as acorns, but they can grow up to 120 feet tall. Trees are used throughout scripture to represent God's kingdom because they represent life and flourishing and abundance. Seeds may start out small, but they have a big impact. And the same is true for yeast. Only a little bit is needed for it to make a huge difference. Because you see, as yeast works its way through the dough, it helps the bread rise. It creates important proteins. It even develops flavor. Jesus gives the example of a little yeast working through 60 pounds of dough. It's able to do that through a process called multiplication. Yeast uses sugars and oxygen in the bread to reproduce itself as it moves and makes its way through the dough. A little bit of yeast makes a big difference. Even though seeds and yeast are small in size, they make a big impact. And y'all, the same is true in the kingdom of God. Every time we treat each other like family, God multiplies it. Every time we look for ways to be generous, God multiplies it. Every time we pursue justice for the marginalized, God multiplies it. Every time we invite people into our lives, into our homes, God multiplies it. Every time we include someone who usually gets excluded, God multiplies it. Every little kingdom act of love and liberation in our broken world is not only good for the immediate results, God takes our individual acts and multiplies them like yeast through dough. He causes them to sprout and expand like a tree, like a seed growing into a big old shade tree. Our small kingdom acts have big kingdom impact. This is exactly what happened when Jesus encountered the disabled woman. Yes, she was healed and it was beautiful and it was awesome, but it was much bigger than that. You see, everyone there witnessed something life-changing. They saw the kingdom of God made manifest right before their eyes. They watched a corrupt religious leader get corrected. They saw the love and liberation of God's kingdom and they would never be the same because of it. They went home and told everyone they knew what had happened. 
This story would end up being passed from town to town and down from generation to generation. Think about it, y'all. Over 2,000 years later, we are still talking about it. We are still being changed by it. That kingdom act is still working its way through the dough. It's still providing life and flourishing as its tree grows ever taller. So what does it look like to do kingdom acts like this today? We don't have to wonder because I saw you all doing kingdom acts like this over and over and over again this very week. You opened up your homes to friends and neighbors without electricity. You boiled water and you took it to people who didn't have any. You bought extra groceries and gave them to people who needed food. You made bag lunches and delivered them to frontline workers. You donated money so we could buy food and water and supplies for people in need. You cooked hot meals for people experiencing homelessness and ate dinner together. You jumped in your four-wheel drive cars and trucks and SUVs and delivered water to people who didn't have any. You woke up in the middle of the night to go check your neighbor's pipes to make sure they weren't frozen when they were on vacation. You turned your homes into water refill stations so people who didn't have any running water could come by your house and fill up. I could go on and on and on, but instead of hearing it from me, I want to show you a video from our kids and family pastor, Sonia Donano. Now, even though she recorded this on Friday for our kids, it brought me to tears when I watched it. I hope that it's as impactful for you as it has been for me. Check it out. Hi, Restore Kids. My goodness, this last week has been crazy. Not only are we all still trying to stay safe from COVID, but we had a really bad winter storm. So much ice and snow broke power lines and made it so lots of people did not have heat to stay warm or clean water to drink. And because the roads were so icy and dangerous to drive on, it was hard to get to people to help them. Maybe you did not have power and you had to stay in a hotel or go stay with a friend. Maybe your water's not working right now when you have to melt snow and boil it to drink. All of these things can be scary. And if you have felt afraid this last week, I want you to know that you are not alone. We have all been feeling a little afraid. But did you know that God says that he is always with us? He loves us and helps us when we are afraid. Did you know that even through all of this hard stuff, God still is taking care of people? And do you know part of how he's doing it? He's using the people who love him to help others. So many neighbors helped each other by sharing food and water or heat that they had. In our own church at Restore, some families who did not have any heat stayed with other families who did have heat. They had a big sleepover. Laura and Kevin helped people stay warm. Pastor Mark brought diapers to some grandparents who needed it for their grandkids. And Billy decided to get pizza and supplies to a children's shelter whose pipes burst. Did you know that some hospitals lost power and water too? That means that the doctors and nurses were taking care of the sick people and then suddenly they didn't have lights or water. So some kids in our church 
Naya and Bear made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and took them to the doctors and nurses so they could have some food to eat. Sometimes we can only help a little or do one part. Like Pastor Zach drove all around and found some water bottles. But then it snowed again and he couldn't drive his car safely to get water to people. So then Chase, Tim, Emily, and her dad said, hey, we have big trucks that are a little safer to drive in the snow. We'll come get the water and take it to the people who need it. Isn't that so amazing? These are only a few examples of the way that people have helped. All the people in our church are acting like one big family. And we are all in one family, the family of God. God loves to see us help each other. When we help others, we are spreading the love of God all over. When we help our friends and neighbors, it makes Jesus so happy. I hope that you and your family are warm and safe. If you are, look around and see if there's anyone you can help. Maybe you can help your brother or sister by getting them a blanket if they're cold or help get snow from the yard to melt it. Maybe you can check on a neighbor. Or if you need help, please ask. It's times like this where we can feel the love and support of the family of God all around us. I want to tell you one other huge way that you can help right now, right where you are. So I've not been able to leave my house because a big frozen branch has fallen in front of my car. So I can't get out of my driveway. But you know a way I have been helping is by praying. Sometimes praying is the best and most powerful way to help others. I've been praying for kids like Mercedes, Julian, Ashley, and Gator, and that their whole family would be able to stay warm. I've been praying for new babies like Rory and Cade, and that their parents would have all the water they need to feed them. And I've been praying for Yasmin as she trades food with her neighbors in her apartment building, and Christian and Summer as they had a pipe burst, and neighbors were able to help them fix it. You know, you can pray too, right now, right where you are. I know that God hears your prayers and that they are so important to Him. Jesus loves kids so much, so let's pray right now. Kids, will you pray with me? If you want to, you can say what I say. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us friends that can help us when we need help. We pray for everyone who is cold and hungry right now. We pray that you would find a way to get them warmth and food. Please show us ways that we can help others who need it. Show us ways that we can spread your love all around. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, everybody, stay safe and love each other. Bye. Ah, thank you, Pastor Sonia. Um, those are such uh, encouraging and uplifting and hope-filled words. What she talked about, y'all, that is our calling. 
to pray that Jesus would, would lead us, empower us by his spirit to, to be his hands and feet, to serve others, to love others just the way that he did when he was here on earth, to be a part of that Luke 4 kingdom mission, to see people set free from spiritual and physical and societal bondage, everything that they carry to help them take it off and hand it to Jesus. As he said, I want to carry your heavy burdens. Give them to me. We get to be a part of that. We get to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That is that the dominion of evil is being replaced by the dominion of love. The kingdoms of this world, the corruption, the brokenness is being replaced by the kingdom of God. And we get to be a part of it. Every time we serve someone else, every time we love someone else, every time we care for someone who is hurting, God takes it and he multiplies it. As the hands and feet of Jesus, our acts of love and liberation are little revolution starters. They change things. They may be small in size, but y'all, these acts have a big impact for the people who experience them and for the kingdom of God. So let's continue to step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community, in our city, and all over this world. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus we thank you for the beauty, the beauty of the divine and human flesh come to earth, God, to carry our burdens, to, to provide healing and hope and love to everyone who needs it. God, thank you for this beautiful story of Jesus noticing someone who never got noticed, healing someone who experienced brokenness, God, and then allowing that little act of love and kindness to multiply so much so that we're still talking about it, still being inspired by it today. God, I pray that we wouldn't leave this here, that we would continue stepping up and stepping out in faith, empowered by you, by your spirit, to love people well. And they would use you would use those kingdom acts to liberate people, to set them free from whatever bondage that they are experiencing. God, your word says that it's for freedom that you have set us free. You haven't just set us free to sit in our freedom. You've set us free to propel us forward, to free others too, through us. So we pray that we would do that. Lift our eyes to notice folks who need help. Just like you did for the woman in the synagogue that day. Empower us, strengthen us, encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.